Well, hello. Yo. It's Ergo. It is. I'm Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of Chicago for the more equitable and creative. Yes, indeed. How you doing? I'm okay. I had a uh, an interesting last week. I woke up in a house fire. Oh. Like a legitimate, like, it. like a back porch aflame. Oh, wow. But everything turned out okay. Obviously, the back porch didn't, but the rest of the house is all right. All right. I was okay. I wouldn't recommend waking up in a fire to anyone. Don't do that. It's no fun. What I would recommend you doing is mm-hmm. listen to the rest of this episode. We have a great, great guest, but any special announcements before we get to it? Yeah, we have our next edition of Ergo Live on July 17th. This one is in partnership with Black Youth Project. We'll be launching a very exciting initiative together at this show. Plus, we have two fantastic guests who have been on the show before. We have Tasha. Blah! And Eve Ewan. Oh, yeah. The gang's all here. <laughs> I love this, the, the difference. <laughs> the gang is all here. That felt correct. <laughs> and a very special guest co-host that we'll be announcing next week. But for now, all you need to know is July 17th, 7.30 p.m., the Green Line Performing Arts Center. That's on 55th, right off the Green Line stop. It's going to be free. We will have food and drinks. It's a beautiful space as part of the arts incubator there. Uh, RSVP is necessary. You can get that on our social media at Ergo Radio, ergoradio.com. There is a Facebook event if you prefer to be nasty and do that on Facebook. (laughs) Um, You can also get your Ergo tees online. We will have a few for sale at the show, but you can get them in every size uh, at ergoradio.com slash store. That's all I got. You got anything you want to throw in there? Nah, just keep living your life. <laughs> Put on deodorant in, in this <laughs> summertime. If anybody is lax or a little bit more earthly in their in their deodorant life and deodorizing, now is the time to be diligent. We didn't say what kind of deodorant. If you want to go natural, yeah, do what yeah, you got to yeah. do. Coconut oil based something. You know, what I'm saying? Something. you don't need the aluminum. But but this is the time to focus. <laughs> Let's focus <laughs> on this incredible conversation with Professor Stacy Sutton, scholarly activist, organizer. Uh, but really a, a deep thinker and worker in the realms of urban planning and cooperative economics. This was this was a doozy. This was a learner right here. I got excited, and I, I, I am I am very happy we got this on wax. We go real deep into the idea of worker cooperatives, what that has looked like, what that could look like, how that economy is structured. Basically, what does it take to reimagine what our economy can look like in a way that actually is lowercase d democratic supports workers, and maybe moves us towards a more equitable city and country and world. That lowercase to uppercase game. That's uh-huh. what we're trying to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> punctuation. Punctuation game. Strong. We actually had uh, my my girlfriend, Rosie, she asked me, I think listeners will appreciate this. She was like, what percentage of your conversations do you think are about words? Because mm. most of my jokes, most of my con- everything is just about words. <laughs> so I'm glad <laughs> to have some statistics yeah, yeah, for it yeah. now. And uh, let's get to our conversation with someone who knows her way around some stats, knows her way around the city, and really helped us through some complicated ideas in a way that I think will be very illuminating and helpful for everybody. So let's get to this conversation with uh, Professor Stacey Sutton. Yeah. Yeah, I'm treating this like an info session. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to, like, have you in this room. Thank you. And we're going to pick your brain. We have... Educator and organizer, and definitively the flyest person <laughs> in no, any I movement space. <laughs> we got Stacy Sutton in the building. <laughs> 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 
All right. I so, feel like there's some people who be real mad about that fly comment. People who have like really invested themselves in, in movement the spaces. In, the movement, in movement spaces, they they can take it. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's hands down. They would be upset if they don't see Stacy's mm-hmm. wardrobe mm-hmm. and aesthetic. Well, the glasses are fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, m- I make a point to make he conversation says, about it <laughs> often and frequently. I say it to her often. I, he says it I say it time. to people around her often. <laughs> I want to make sure we all know. And Barbara always no says, like, how come you always get that comment? <laughs> you dress better. There's another level. I pay him. I there pay is, him. I there... pay him. <laughs> <laughs> so you're we... like the George Soros of compliments. <laughs> you gotta pay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's funny. So... We always like to start, we have a tradition, uh, with a two-part question. Okay. And that question is, in this time, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Mm. That is a very good question. The world is hard. So personally, it's, it's hard to separate like the personal treatment and just mm-hmm. like the treatment of mm-hmm. people, my mm-hmm. people, or communities. Yeah. And it's hard. Like, it's hard out there. I don't want to say it. That song. It's hard out there for a pimp. But, you know, it's hard. Um, that might be our first hustle and float. No, yeah. second hustle and float. We're talking to someone about building a okay. studio with the egg crates. It's like, yeah, it is. It's um, And so, yeah, I feel fortunate in many ways. I'm able to be here with you. I have a you know flexible schedule. I'm doing my work at the same time. But the systems, you know, kind of are that weigh on people. And even those who have more resources, you still feel those systems in a day-to-day, and you still feel the ongoing oppression. So I, I find it to be really hard. And I think it's also the work I try to do, right? Yeah. So you, it's, you could be oblivious to it if you choose, but if you're doing certain kinds of work, then you're dealing with it day-to-day, people's, people's needs, people's mm-hmm. struggles. Um, and it's also Chicago. Chicago, one thing I love about Chicago as a newcomer, relative newcomer to Chicago, is the way in which people take that challenge and just like hit it straight on. Like you have to in Chicago because hmm. I've never experienced this level of kind of activism. Mm. Even when I thought I was an activist in New York, it, it, like they have no, it, nothing on what Chicago is able to do and really put bodies on their li- in the line. And it's, it is the most beautiful space for that. And you realize you have to because this is a hard city. Yeah. It's a real hard city. The hardness to me is hard to sometimes articulate mm. because it just is, right? Like it is it is my my what I know. Yeah. And so as someone who has come here, when you say it is a hard city, what does that really mean? Mm. So many things. So as an urban planner, right? So I think about the city in many kind of in a kind of a multiplicity of of aspects of a city, right, in terms of the built environment, the social, the economic. Um, And so when I think about how cities function, and especially large cities, Chicago being the third largest, all cities are problematic and they stratify populations and there's corruption. There's all these things, Mm -hmm. right, in every city globally. But now that I've been studying Chicago, the ways in which the system reinforces itself Mm. is phenomenal, right? And and when I try to explain that to my students who are from Chicago or from the Midwest or from the suburbs, they just think that's how cities function. (laughs) It could be everything from no term limits on mayors Mm -hmm. and so what that means, the the all dramatic prerogative, all of the political systems that keep a mayor in office for multiple generations, which means keeps policies in in practice uh, for multiple generations, the physical structure of the city, you can look at statistics and say, okay, all cities are segregated. Chicago's a level of segregation that I don't 
think exists in other places. But numerically, when people study segregation, you know, New York is up there in terms Mm -hmm. of segregation. You still feel the difference because you're on the train Mm -hmm. and people get off in different places. But in Chicago, and we intentionally moved to the South Side, people that are on the South, they don't leave the South Side necessarily. Mm -hmm. I asked one of the guys in the gym, um, I said something about going to Logan Square. And he didn't really know where that was. Mm-hmm. You know, he, yeah. he was just like, what? He grew yeah. up on the South Side. He's from the South Side. So it's, it's you know, I can get kind of um, more detailed, but it's <clears throat> the different ways in which the system continues to oppress those who are most marginalized, mm-hmm. right? It's every, I mean, so in my research, I look at uh, traffic tickets. Mm-hmm. And how the traffic, yeah, that yeah. system. Is, yes, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I could. Tr- I like. I made you have to do an hour more of research. <laughs> Didn't you look up like yeah. every traffic ticket in the state for like the last ten years? Well, it was something no. like an, an amazing data set. So, it, so I have a public data set in which I, I have. So this isn't just me, right? It's WBZ and ProPublica. They kind of hit me to it because right. they started using this data that wasn't publicly available yet. You had to um, uh, have a FOIA request mm-hmm. to get access to all tickets since twenty. 13, I think. And so it's all types of tickets. Tickets for jaywalking, tickets for moving violations, tickets for red light cameras, and so on Mm -hmm, and so forth. mm -hmm. Millions and millions of records. And so I segmented that data because I was really interested. And so what we know, let me just back up, what we know generally, and whether it's a ticket for cleaning the streets in terms of did you you shovel the snow appropriately in front of your house or to ticket for bicycle riding on the sidewalk, what we know is disproportionately black and brown folks get more tickets and disproportionately black folks on the South Side, right? And we attribute that to the kind of the racial bias in ticketing because mm-hmm. the officer has a decision to make, are we going to ticket this person or not, whether mm-hmm. it's police or just a ticket agent. What I was interested in is, well, what happens when we look at the automated tickets? Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be a racial bias in automated tickets, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are cameras all over the city, 450 now. We should see a, a kind of a fair distribution of these cameras. But we don't. What we see is the actual where the cameras are. When you look at the map, they look like they're kind of slightly more northwest. There are a number on the south side, but but slightly more in the northwest. And then when you do the analysis, you realize, but Black folks are getting ticket neighborhoods, so you can't say black folks per se, but neighborhoods that are disproportionately black, 60 to 80 and up mm-hmm. percent black, get more than two times more tickets. Mm. So why? How? Why? Like, is it just that black folks drive? Or, you know, what is the explanation for that? We got places to be. We got places to be. <laughs> right? Except we can't stop at all these lights. Yeah. And so I've been <laughs> doing a lot of research trying to understand that phenomenon mm-hmm. and soon to hopefully publish some of that. Um, because it's just it's insane. It's what are insane. some of the hypotheses, or what are you finding for the automated side of it? Where, where yeah, and I'm only right now looking at the automated yeah. side. So the craziest thing, I don't know how much you know about statistics, but when you start to model like, so there's one thing I'm looking at in terms of like um, the economic impact on people, mm-hmm. right? So how much of a burden is this? And so I'm only looking at tickets that were paid. Right? Hmm. So there's a number of things that can happen. You can um, pay a ticket. You can go into bankruptcy. There's another category where you're just receiving your no- the notice, but you haven't paid it, right? So I extracted only tickets that are paid to try to understand, well, how much are paid? Because if you don't pay it when you first get it, which is $100, it doubles within 21 days. So it's $200. Right. And then it keeps getting fines. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean per neighborhood? Like, which neighborhoods have the greatest economic burden from tickets? Hmm. <clears throat> and disproportionately, hands down, unequivocally, Percent black in a neighborhood explains way too much of that. So much that 
I caught Lou and I'm like, we can't even publish. No one's going to believe that. Like, we have to figure out other ways <laughs> to calm this down. Because how is it possible that if you just have this economic burden and you put percent black in, just those two, that one variable explains 60% of it. Mm. That's insane. And then you put other things in to help us like, okay, well, how about, you know, other like income, other things? How many yeah. cars are in the area? Yeah, how yeah. the population? Mm -hmm. It's still ridiculous. So then we decided to look at rideshare. Mm -hmm. Right, because the rideshare data just came out. Because you can get where the 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 drivers their 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 neighborhood of origin mm -hmm. and how many trips they make and all of that stuff. So yeah. I merged all that data, and that helps calm it down. So it's it's and but that's still correlated with poorer people are right. driving. Mm -hmm. you know. Depends who you know who has access to different segments of the economy as workers. Absolutely. Yeah. So all of that to say, and you'll hear this again and again about Chicago. It's the kinds of policies we don't even think about. Mm -hmm that exist, right? Mm -hmm. So I was on a panel talking about these tickets and his brother was on a panel. Um, he was a fireman in Chicago. Ooh. Whoa, there's a dog in the building. Damn. Oh, wow. And he had a moment. They wow. had a moment. Wow, That's they did. That's a big Don't dog. Don't gender the dog. Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere. Um, and he bought a car for his son. His son was away at college. So the car was sitting on an empty lot next to his aunt's or cousin's house in a neighborhood he grew up in. Mm -hmm. And he's a fireman, but he lives in the next neighborhood, right? And at some point, his aunt called him and said, you have tickets on your car. So he went, he got the tickets, went downtown to pay the tickets. Come to find out, though, he had like five tickets on the car. Come to find out, there were 77 tickets mm. on this car. <sighs> and all of those tickets were given in four-month period by like three officers. They just were coming every They're day just, writing the tickets. Let's make the quotas. We got it, right? And because of the anti-scoff laws in Chicago, you can't work for the city. You can't drive Lyft. You can't drive any ride share if you owe the city money. That is mm. the law. So he was to lose his job. I didn't know any of So that. you yeah. can't work for the city, but you also can't work for certain any, jobs that are contracted or in Or like ride share, right? Because when you, you say ride, ride share, are you talking about Uber and Lyft? Uber and Lyft, you're supposed if to- you If you owe the city money. the city money. Wow. That, what that, way? <laughs> that's, that's, what is the, what is the apparatus you, of that? How does the city know that well, you're driving? Because your vehicle, your you registration? vehicle registration. Right. Okay, the you, city, have to, you have yeah, to register yeah, with the city. You have to register to, with to the Uber city. When you're registering with Uber and Lyft, the same way they know that your car's been inspected and so forth. Okay. Oh, oh, those God. systems I didn't merge. even know. You are not a, So uh, he's a fireman. So Uber is connected to the state in that, that way. Well, yeah. Basically, in terms of some, there's the, some the, regulatory the and, apparatus that is connected to the state the, to make sure that drivers are not. I mean, there's some protections in that, right? Mm, so yeah, that drivers, yeah, I understand some of it. But if you owe the city money, the city knows that you're Uber or Lyft yeah. driver. So if you owe us money, you can't make money. God, the use of debt as a disenfranchisement oh tool. I oh was just, God. I saw, you know, they passed that um, referendum in Florida that was, you know, restoring voting rights yeah. to formerly incarcerated people. And the addendum they just put in is you can't vote until you pay off all outstanding debts to the state. Okay. So what that, you know, if you've been imprisoned, you tend to rack up some debts. <laughs> Do they mean just like carceral debts or any no, no, type no. of like any, fi any yeah. financial debt? Any if you owe tickets, so if you if have you tickets, you can't vote. Back payments on your house, all, all types of things. Oh, this is about this is about to be. Is this a new phenomenon? I feel like that's something they will roll out everywhere they can. I mean, it's new in that it's, we haven't done it this way since like the English. Yeah, <laughs> right, I was getting ready to say. Yeah, so yeah. this yeah. is the same. As, but the interesting thing with, with, with gets, Chicago yeah. and Illinois is there's no um, statute of limitations. <laughs> so in New York, if you owe, it's like eight or nine years. In Chicago, if you if you owe money from black codes, like right, they, <laughs> right. you still yeah. owe that money, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they have a right to continue to to penalize you. And so this guy, oh, you know, crazy. he owed thirty thousand dollars to the city. He's a he's a fireman. Wow. 
for, for parking for a car. Parking for that car sitting on that lot, which is a private lot. So there's a question, why? how are they wow. able to come on a private lot and do that? And so he didn't want to lose his job. So he, um, they tell you when you go down to pay, file for bankruptcy. They don't tell you that filing for bankruptcy, of course, that's going to mess up your credit. But it doesn't go to pay off any of the loans because it's Chapter 7, not Chapter 13 or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Whichever chapter doesn't help. So mm-hmm. he filed for bankruptcy. He was able to keep his loans. But he still had to pay $30,000. Over time, and when I met him, he had like another eighteen thousand. And there's no way to no- negotiate that down. He's like, you better not have a fire. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't coming. I'm, not, I'm coming, but I'm gonna sit there. Uh-huh. That's it. That'll be six thousand dollars. <laughs> so, uh, wow, this so is this, is, this right. is so rich. I feel like we could talk about just this talk, for oh, oh my god. But I, I'm so indecisive. I have I have two threads, <laughs> and you can like. The Black Mirror movie choose oh. which way you <laughs> this yeah, I, I didn't even see that yet, so uh, I shouldn't be throwing that reference out. So <laughs> you're saved. <laughs> my my two thoughts or curiosities are how are we connecting in like the corrupt nature of how the parking meter contract and the red lights were installed in the first place, and like mm-hmm. two aldermen have gone to jail for that already, right? For each of those. Well, I don't know about the, or indicted the, at least. I don't know about the one. cameras. Oh yes, yes, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that was from up till two. So that's one thread, mm-hmm. and then the, the other thread is like the overall harm of this corruption or of this extraction. It's an extraction, um, absolutely. In what ways is you were starting to say how like it's unique to Chicago? It's not fully unique, Ooh. but Chicago has its particular <laughs> variant. Right. So mm-hmm. it's the little things that we don't know that, oh, you can't keep your job because you owe right. the money. But you, then how are you going to make the money back? Or there's no statute of limitations, which means forever you yeah. owe this money. Mm-hmm. And then we wonder why are people leaving Chicago? Right. Yeah. Right. These 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 are connected. Right. I didn't um, look at what happened when, um, I, as I understand it, the issue with the cameras, the, there was a certain limit on that movement from yellow to red. It was supposed to be like 0.4 tenths of a second or something like that. Four tenths of a second. And I think it was down to one tenth of a second. And so that, you know, so it's those little decisions that get made Mm -hmm. by someone. And the city can say, it wasn't us. It was the contractor. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what happens when you privatize things is you lose that level of accountability. Absolutely. To your point about like, not the overall themes are unique, but the, Maybe severity or bald-facedness of it. The of it. Yeah. Yeah. When I tell people that the parking spots are owned by an international corporation in another country, that's They got a 99-year contract. (laughs) And the L Ventra is it. Like, when you explain that to someone, especially someone from Mm. another city where there's Mm -hmm. still some sort of context around a public. Mm -hmm. Of like, oh, I'm investing into the city's well good. When I jump the train stop, that's taken away from the... Right. Right. I'm more willing to pay my ticket because that money is going to the city Mm -hmm. to... Mm -hmm. You know, clean the streets and do all those types of even, you know, whatever public good it is, that's the thing that people are like, oh, this is different. And yeah. that's the neoliberal atrocity of it. Right. Is yeah. because I don't know if it's just because it also coincided like with me coming into adulthood and driving, but what it feels like is because that revenue was auctioned off, they have replaced it and ramped up the the fines and ticketing yep. in the last five to That's probably is there do you know if there's like an increase in the trend um no. since the contracts no, have gone that way? I don't know that because there's been an increase in trend in terms of the number of tickets, but I don't I didn't do the correlation in terms mm-hmm. of when yeah. they started contracting the parking tickets. And I think they would argue, right, from the city's point of view, it's it's well you're you know, every dollar that you pay into to paying a ticket or paying for a parking spot well, that's going to an investor. They received money up front, right? So the money up mm-hmm. front 
you know, that's going to essentially pay off the debt that the city had um, yeah. borrowed. Mm. Right? But like, so if you were my <clears throat> friend and you tried that line on me, yeah, I'd be, be like, good. hell no. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. You're de- you, you already you made that to yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So and it's always yeah. going back to these pensions that it's like, well, wh- why are we in such a problem with the pensions in yeah. the first place? Like, what what is that about? Yeah, that's such a convenient boogeyman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Damon has been talking about the parking ticket <laughs> and discriminatory practice around I've that. I've called it the largest racket in American history. It's a So what I hear is that it's an example of something we've been talking more and more about on the show are like the things that people who live in a place already know. And then it takes researchers Mm -hmm. (laughs) to provide the, you know, quantitative evidence that's necessary Mm -hmm. to reinforce the thing that people have known Mm -hmm. for decades. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we can trace this back. Bring knowledge to information. Exactly. So as someone who, you know, you are picking which things to be analyzing and which to be learning. Is is that kind of part of the lens is like, what are the things that the people who are affected about this are already fighting against or encountering or know? And how can I use these tools to like yeah. help? Absolutely. As a scholar activist, that's, that's how yeah. I think about everything. Right? Mm. Because by the time that we actually get this stuff out there, people are already kind of harmed by it. They know it. It's their lived experience. Right. It becomes interesting to cities and they start making changes when you start doing these comparatives. Like, oh, but L.A. actually changed the policies. Like, there are places... It, it, there's nothing. There's, there. there's yeah. nothing. There's nothing inherent. <laughs> I just got back. <laughs> right. I mean, it did, right, indeed. Uh-huh. There's nothing inherent about the like. You, you these gave, were you gave the cops tickets out there. <laughs> <laughs> I did just get my license back. My license expired my birthday in September, and I was like, "Oh, I have a grace period." <laughs> Ooh, <it's laughs> and then I just like kind of forgot, and I got really lucky. I got pulled over a couple of times. I like charm my way out of it, or like they, they were trying to. Fuck me up like that at that time. But my my fuck the police game has gone through the roof for the last three weeks. I've been like me mugging at the lights. <laughs> been cutting them off. Anything that's just like rude, but yeah. like not against the law. Like, you have, yeah, because yeah, yeah. now they can't, you know, their discretion isn't right. as much at play. Oh, that's so I was in LA. I'm in a whole other city. Like, what up? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I will signal and I will cut you off. <laughs> but you were saying that that it's not inherent. Right, right. Yeah. It's not. I mean, the city it, changes can be made. Right. And other places, because of community engagement and community activism, they, they've started to can repeal some of the most punitive policies. Well, yeah. at least around this. Chicago hasn't yet. What is like the radical umbrella we can put this under, right? Like, not even invisible. This pretty visible tax on the poor. Yeah. Right? Like, what is the equivalent to abolish the police and prisons of that, right? Like, <laughs> we need to figure out that that is inhumane and unjust. Yeah. Uh, and So, the radical way of framing it. So, I put it under punitive policies, right? So, there's, hmm. a, there's a myriad of punitive policies. Yes. And you have to think about municipal finance, which is a really kind of banal and, like, boring way of thinking about it. And people that do that research are not, taking a radical lens to it. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's exactly what needs to happen, right? The financialization, we could talk about neoliberalism and so forth, but that often gets us to the theoretical and the critique. Right. And there's empirical evidence under it, but how does that play out in people's lived experience? Yeah. What are the right? mechanics, what of, are the mechanics of it? And so that's kind of where I like hmm. to enter it. I have a whole body of work that's about punitive cities. Hmm. Chicago's the only city I'm looking at right now. <laughs> but it, it, but it, 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 it gives you enough. I it's enough to have time a body to, of work. I haven't had time to move on. <laughs> so how do you define that term? How do I define it? That's interesting. I haven't had to. So I, I think I look, I define it, um, again, I haven't had to, but I, I define it in a way of um, thinking about the planning policies and practices 
that cities implement, right? So it's it's a set of decisions that are made, right? And so once it's a decision, you could go either any way. Right. So I'm looking at those that could seem to create most harm for black and brown folks, folks that are marginalized. Like what are the practices in which cities are extracting yeah. uh, revenue from the, those who have the least? Hmm. And if those don't, folks don't pay, they're caught up in right. a system that they are, you know, right. it's hard to escape. It's like it's punitive in and of itself and then talk about a pipeline yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. into incarceration. Wow. I haven't kind of heard it defined in like the city term mm. in that way. Putting it in historical context, old models of, you know, criminalizing debt and mm-hmm. having extractive measures. Absolutely. Where are some examples where that has been challenged and, and you've seen kind of a move? If we're using punitive versus restorative as the, mm-hmm. the, the dichotomy, more models of, uh, of a restorative city framework when it comes to this yeah, kind of that's stuff. that's a good point. So it may not be on these particular policies, although I think LA and San Francisco have started to reduce some of the fines or take a, they've taken down some of the cameras. That, that was the mm. first thing, right? Yeah. So especially in LA where we have 450, I don't know the number, but I know they reduced their number of cameras and really went back and looked at, are these cameras in places in which they they correlate with with safety, right? right? right. Does it help society? Right. Does it help? <laughs> um, and that is the logic that cities always use. Oh well, we're trying to redo. And then you look at where the cameras are, and it's like, well, those weren't the areas that had the highest crashes. Yeah, yeah. But in the in, in terms of like, but the in broader thing, yeah. I think so. The, so as I say, one body of work is punitive cities. The other is enabling cities, hmm. and that work I look at ways in which cities are enabling kind of cooperatives, collective. Economics. So, what are cities doing to allow folks to fully participate in the economy? Mm-hmm. So, if they're penalized on one end, well, well, how are people able to, you know, self-determine? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just every city has some kind of small business project, but it's beyond that. There are twelve cities, at least in a paper I just wrote, that are intentionally and very actively supporting worker-owned cooperatives. Hmm. And again, Chicago's not there. They're not on the list, but they, they're starting to now. So what are those cities? I know Jackson is kind yeah. of the one everyone points to. But yeah, what, except what that actually, that, so there, again, there are 12 cities that I studied, but there are other cities that are doing it, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily a municipal right, project. Right, right, For right, sure. Right, so I'm looking at 12 cities that the city actually had some mm-hmm. agency in mm-hmm. it. And so those are Cleveland, Rochester, New York, Richmond, California, Richmond, Virginia, Oakland, Berkeley, Philly, Austin, New York, Madison, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, and there might be a couple mm-hmm. others. So, so there's, are, it's across the country. It's across the country. Yeah. They're doing different things. Mm-hmm. Some have put just a ton of money. Yeah. Cleveland put helped to leverage about $25 million to start the Evergreen Cooperatives, which are a set of cooperatives modeled after the Madrigan in Spain. Other cities like New York about $2 million per year hmm. into kind of technical assistance and support for worker-owned cooperatives. Other cities embedded these programs within the city's offices of, like, business development. So, you know, folks, folks that are starting cooperatives can come in and get technical assistance. There are a number of things that, that these places are doing, and a big part of it is, like, building awareness. Because if yeah. you ask somebody, hey, you know, what do you know about a worker cooperative? Most people just look at you. Yeah. What? It's that grocery what? store I can't go into. <laughs> yeah, and that's not... Typically, not a worker cooperative. It might right. be a cooperative, but it's but not a worker cooperative, right? right. So, so. What, what about those spaces or cities? What trends or parallels in terms of political consciousness has made it fertile for, for that new type of investment? Mm. So you mean across those cities? Yeah, because in just hearing that list, I, you know, I guess they sound blue in the like 
very flat blue red yeah. divide. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but like, like beyond what that, Rochester and Chicago Berkeley is blue. Yeah. 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 So I, I stratify. Why don't those. we get it? Why don't we get it yeah. yet? We we are we're getting there. Okay. Um, I stratify this. So yeah, I just listed all of them, but they're very different, yeah. right? And the middle group, the the Oakland, Berkeley. Austin and Boston, they have a history of cooperatives. So it's not just workaround, but they, they're they they're more comfortable with cooperatives, mm. right? Some of them, a lot of them are agriculture related, but not all of them. Mm. So it's easier to get a municipal leader to pass legislation, pass resolutions, and make an investment in something that they're familiar with. Mm-hmm. I think it's harder when the cities just don't, there's no champion within a city government um, to kind of leverage the resources. So I think politically, the middle group of cities that I was looking at, which um, I call them like endorser cities, they didn't put a lot of money into it, but they're very familiar with that model of mm-hmm. cooperative. Where the other end, like New York, Minneapolis, Madison, they're also, they have a culture of it, but they also put capital into it. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, we have to really kind of ramp this up. And then the Cleveland, Rochester, so it was very new. It came to them I think there were champions in city government that said, let's do this. And so it's very much an experiment. Hmm. Um, and they, outside of the experiment that they're working on, they don't have a, a community of cooperatives. Yeah, and those are mostly big. like big company towns. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think about Cleveland. Even Rochester too. Like this, these are post-industrial yep. Midwest towns. Interesting. So to that point about what is kind of shared, if anything, between them, what are some of the roadblocks or challenges that have come up and, and how have they been addressed kind of on the macro scale, like what are, mm. what are you seeing in terms of this implementation that a city that's starting out at the beginning could learn from those mistakes? Yeah. So they're very new. So all of this has happened since 2010. I think cities that are getting into this now, they have to be patient. You have to be patient because if you look for the same outcomes that you look for with like um, conventional businesses, right. you're kind of looking down the wrong kind of rabbit hole, I guess. Right. Partly because these are our businesses and they, they, um, uh, they're typically for-profit businesses, but we're still learning how to be democratic. If it's right. truly doing what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to be a democratic organization, just democratic decision-making, democratic dissemination of resources, uh, worker ownership in which economic democracy is something we don't know how to do. Yeah. So it takes a little bit <laughs> longer for folks, but they're saying, oh, well, we got people working. I think too many cities are using this just as a workforce development yeah. tool. Mm-hmm. And so they want the outcomes of like, how many jobs, how many jobs? And it's like, yeah, you're going to get the jobs and people are going to feel fulfilled and they'll be committed, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time to see for the transformation. Yeah. yeah. And that's tough and in like a very result-centered thing, which is like how traditional in development works it's like in in this five-year plan we brought in this many dollars we built this many high rises we kicked this many people out basically you know so like the last like year and a half the one to get you up here uh to to really go deeper because in terms of the crisis of capitalism i Mm -hmm. think there has been an increased sensitivity or consciousness to in that same period in this last 10 years or so i've accepted and i think a lot of people are accepting that cooperative economics is the step or is the transitional path we need to take. Mm-hmm. However, I, I feel like I understand it really well theoretically, mm-hmm. uh, but like what it means technically mm-hmm. in like implementation, it still mm-hmm. is pretty vague and abstract for me. But I even want to go a step back and not assume that like all of our 
listeners, everybody hears this yeah. conversation, like is already on board or understands what a cooperative really is. And when you right. say worker ownership, how and why that's so distinct from the norm. Yeah. So yeah, if you, we could just like Take go back, back. Yeah. Let's, go back let's to play to our s- game. Define, define the, term. the term. Yeah. <laughs> so the first term to define is cooperative, mm-hmm. right? What what is a cooperative organization or cooperative business? And there are different types. There are producer cooperatives, consumer cooperatives like food co-ops. They're purchasing cooperatives, and then they're another model, the worker-owned cooperative. And essentially, what what all of them have in common is this commitment to democracy in which each member has one vote. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how much you've invested in the entity. Hmm. You only get one vote. That's very different than a conventional business in which shareholders, depending on how many shares you own, that's how many votes you get. So that's the fundamental difference. And we're talking from large Agricultural cooperatives like Lando Lakes, yeah. Ocean Spray, you know, these large agriculture, retail cooperatives like REI, and small food cooperatives. One member, one vote is the fundamental thing that mm-hmm. kind of binds them. Hmm. Worker cooperatives are a little different. While they subscribe to that same principle, the members are the workers. The workers are the owners. So if you think of like a retail cooperative or a food cooperative, if you are a member of a food cooperative, you may have paid a little bit to become a member and then you have access to purchasing right. or or just anybody off the street can come in and purchase, mm-hmm. but you may not ha- be a member. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But the workers at the food cooperative don't benefit any more than any other type of worker. And in fact, in mm-hmm. agriculture, some of the workers are quite marginalized, right? So they're not, there's not a better condition working in agriculture in a cooperative than a non-cooperative if you're kind of a a picker or, you know, at a lower right. end can, of the Can spread. you say more about why? Why not? Um, because they're not protect, necessarily protected, yeah. right? So if you are a grower of cranberries and it's harvest time and you need to hire folks to, to harvest the fruit, you're not going to be necessarily paying them a living wage. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily have health benefits. There's no necessarily any difference between them and I don't right. know the banana company, you know, whoever. Right. That, right? It's about the difference. It's in about the relationship between the the capital the owner right. and the, the owner, and right? The large, Absolutely. The so it's the relationship. So the so as an agricultural um, cooperative, those who are in cooperation are the owners of mm-hmm. the various entities, but mm-hmm. the workers may not have much agency in, oh, okay, and decision right. making. Okay. Right. All so right. the owners have decided. Owners of small cranberry. You know, uh, how farms. is that? How is that a cooperative then? Because, they because the owners are in cooperation. So a bunch of small oh, farms. So instead let's of say, competing with each other, right? They, they are sharing co- resources. They're sharing resources and, and marketing. Right? We don't know how many farmers are part of, or farm farm firm organizations are part of Ocean Spray per se. That in our mind, it's one entity, entity. or uh, cabinet cheese. Right? These are these are cooperatives. Right. Okay. And it's a bunch of smaller kind of dairy farmers and others that come together, share resources and benefit through collective marketing and so forth, right? Those are typically understood as producer cooperatives. Okay. But the, but there's no guarantee within that that the workers who are no, doing the work are being absolutely. treated. And they don't get it. They're not getting votes. the same decision. No. They don't get to like that's decide the what the prices absolutely. are. And, and and that's similar to um kind of like Ace Hardware. Mm-hmm. Right? The that's a cooperative. The owners are in cooperation of all the Ace Hardwares all over, but the workers don't have any decision-making power. Mm. Right. Right. They might get some kind of member benefit, but not not like a worker cooperative. So a worker-owned cooperative, it can exist in any industry. And the fundamental difference is it's still one member, one vote, but the fundamental difference is those who work there 
are the decision makers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it may be hierarchical where you still have, you know, a, and, and the pay can be stratified, but it's typically less stratified than a conventional business. Mm-hmm. So right now the conventional businesses, on average, it's 300 to one in terms of the highest paid to the lowest paid. <laughs> We're a cooperative. They don't have, I know it's an insane it's statistic. It's that just, just sounds, to the point about like bald face, like that just sounds so crazy. I know. Like it's if you were true. like, all right, we're gonna make we're gonna make an industry, and we're gonna have a three hundred to one ratio. You just go get the get out of here. Yeah, and yeah. Again, and friend. the person getting the one is probably doing more physical. Work. Right, and the crazy thing that's the average. So so the Googles and the others are much right. higher than that, much higher. Oh much my higher. god. Um, but in a cooperative, you don't have to do this, but the average is six to one. Hmm. Right, that's a huge difference. Right, right, right. And some are absolutely flat, so it's up to them. But the, but it, fundamentally, everyone is an owner. Everyone has say, and even when they become really large entities like the Madrigan in um, the Basque region of Spain, which has like 80,000 worker owners in over 100 different industry, different um, firms. It, it started really small in the Basque region, was under the reign of Franco, but and resistance to that, hmm. um, and has expanded. It's in retail, they're in manufacturing. They started as a, a producer of, I think it was like, refrigerators and they're mm. they're very kind of technical and high skilled they started a university they started mm. a small bank right so they're all the things that are necessary to produce industries and they support each other in research and development to start other cooperatives right so they don't mm. see them as competing the worker owner is a huge it, that is the difference so, yeah. so what does a, a a deep understanding of the value of cooperatives provide us in terms of being able to name and critique the harms of normative competitive capitalist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. economics yeah. and like labor markets. So when we think of the the conventional enterprises, the conventional businesses and and kind of capitalism as it performs as it's performing well now, right? This is capitalism performing well. It's we often talk about, oh well, you know, there's, there's some irregularities. It's like, no, this is what it's set up to do. It's set up mm, right. for some folks to be able for to accumulate to, yeah. a lot, and those are typically the owners. And they're only able to do that by extracting resources and getting the most out of the labor on the bottom. So to understand cooperative ownership the solidarity is, and that's why people locate this within the solidarity economy, because it's about um, our collective benefit that we can all do well mm. if we own collectively. Sometimes, mm. you know, when you think about the rugged individual and the entrepreneurial individual, yeah. we always talk about these individuals. And very few individuals are able to succeed on their own. Mm-hmm. This is an understanding from the get that to do well, you need to be with others right, in, right. in community with others. And even those who those few that seem like they did well now, it's usually an erasure usually, right, or, an, or an extraction. An extraction yeah. of, of others' resources and others, you know, knowledge and right, just right. all sorts of things, yeah. right? So only one is getting the, the recognition. It ain't that rugged, bro. <laughs> it ain't that rugged. <laughs> um, and so when I think about especially lower-income folks, what you don't have the resources to do it on your own, right? You may know one aspect of the business. Somebody else knows another aspect. Somebody else brings creativity. So if we can all sit together, and it's not easy, but try to hash it out and go into yeah. business together, the problem is that our systems aren't set up for it. The reason we don't have as many worker cooperatives is because our banking system, uh, right? Ah, we need that, <laughs> right? There's always, let's right? So there's, let's get to it. Right? So <laughs> the reality is there's lack of public awareness mm-hmm. and there's lack of capital. Small businesses have a hard time getting capital anyway. But if you're a co- worker and cooperative and you go and ask a bank, one, they have no idea what the hell you're talking about. And two, they're like, okay, who, 
who, who, who, yeah. who, how, how do we collateralize this? Right, who in is inspired? Is it yeah. you? Is it you? Is it mm-hmm. you? You're like, no, all 20 of us. They're like, get the hell out of here. Yeah. They're not, yeah. they're not. So there are some cooperative banks mm-hmm. um, out there, but there are more ideas, more energy around starting businesses than there is capital available. Mm-hmm. So going back to our theme of like the things that people already know and then you need to figure out how to, you know, frame that in a way that a bank or a city government or whatever will recognize as legitimate. We had Rich Wallace up here about a month or two months ago and mm-hmm. we were talking about this language of the informal economy, right? So mm-hmm. all the ways that outside of the, you know, recognized structure of economics and industry, there are people engaging in trade, engaging in an economy that is an enormous portion of the economy that exists in this country. Right. Are there models of cooperative economy and cooperative building that exist in the informal economy, uh, maybe on a scale or at an effectiveness that haven't yet because the formal economy is constricted by the yeah. banks and all that yeah. kind of stuff? Yeah, most, most start that way, right? If the goal of the conventional business is to grow and to expand and to make profit and to extract, that's not necessarily the goal of cooperative right? mm. um, enterprise. They want to grow and they want to be um, solvent, but some remain really small. And intentionally, and some remain under the radar, intentionally, undocumented communities use cooperatives all the time, right? That is a way in which they can share resources and work. And the reason they passed new legislation or they were strong advocates for passing the legislation in Illinois to recognize worker cooperatives, and that just happened in May, was because of undocumented folks can't work um, here, right? But they can work, own their own business, So, or it's easier to own their own Mm -hmm. business. And so they, as a worker owner, feel a little bit more, um, a little bit greater safety Hmm. in, uh, through a cooperative structure. Prior to the, I guess it was around May, April, May, um, the only way in which these organizations could be recognized were through LLCs. They didn't have like a a cooperative, a legal structure. There wasn't Mm. a framework for them to. That's interesting. And so they pushed the legislation, which went through. Just um, this May? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So there's so, a new categorization now? For yeah, so we had a cooperative act since for the last hundred years, but that was really, it, there was no mention of worker-owned cooperatives. It was legislation that was enhancing the agricultural industry in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And worker owners felt that they needed something that would support and acknowledge uh, this organizational form, right? Hmm. So I'm going to also cast out where we could go later. Yeah. And I'm going to come back to, to where I was We're just at. fishing. You know, <laughs> just out here fishing. So I, I want to make sure we say some more about the banks because mm. I feel like we haven't covered that enough up here. And then also just like the, the notion of profit seeking and how you're saying that like the cooperative economy, like profit might not be the like priority in the same way. Uh, or expansion. Because I think well, profit is, is, a, is a process. Profit is not necessarily uh, surplus or, or revenue, right? right? right. Pro- profit is earnings that are then taken away and distributed amongst yeah, that, shareholders. That's the, that's the key. Right. So I, I want, but that's, that was just a fishing cast. <laughs> okay. we're, we're leaving that out there. We're going to let that sit. Okay. I want to get back to the idea of the economic democracy of it all. Cause mm-hmm. I think that's really at the root of it. Are you, are you, are you a fan of Richard Wolf? Are you check him out? He yeah, kinda, I check him out. He's, is he annoying <laughs> to you? I can imagine, yeah. imagine like if you were like really in it, <laughs> I could be annoyed. Yeah, he could, yeah. I rock with him though. Who's okay. dude? He's like blown up over the last four or five years, probably since like Bernie, came into to the world but he's probably like the, the the most prolific not prolific but like known or visible like marxian economist mm-hmm. uh and he has he's a really great like speaker and he has a way to like make it like really like 
pinpoint and now he's gotten his media bag real tough mm. so he does a bunch of talks and mm-hmm. is, is then on some podcasts yeah, and yeah, he has yeah. a lot of like syndicates he has a lot of organizations that support him all over the yeah. country I think Not democracy now democracy, and a bunch yeah. Of, yeah so a bunch of like work democracy stuff. at work democracy yeah. at work is yeah. what yeah. i meant. Yeah. Um, yeah. democracy now is the other lady <laughs> <laughs> and so the thing that he pointed out to me is like as i was getting into movement and like thinking about revolution and thinking about participatory democracy and how the state functions and blah, 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 i had this like <laughs> <laughs> very traditional economic background that i was trying to figure out how to convert mm-hmm. and use to understand it and, and radical work uh, but the, what he basically said is we cannot have democracy if basically people are living under fascist authoritative Period. rule. Full stop. Day to day. Full right? stop. And I, and I had never thought of it like that. You do not have decision making power over Absolutely. your body, over right. your activity, Absolutely. over your income. Right. When yep. you submit or sell your labor to a corporation. Uh, hmm. And that's also another thing we don't talk about is the fact that it is a buying and selling. It's, we think of a boss as like an overlord, but he's really a purchaser. He's a purchaser. Of your time. We sell our your, labor. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. And, and you are selling something. But unlike owners of capital. Once they sell, they get to name the price. Once you sell, you have to take the price <laughs> that they, the that price. they offer You're you. You're a price taker. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Th- that's conventional. That's neoclassical economics. Right, right. right. People Based understand that. And, yeah. and That's wh- really interesting. Why do people accept that? What is missing? Like, wh- what do we need to do to further that conversation to make that more popularized? That there is something inherently dehumanizing <laughs> about how labor works, and that is... Half of the day that we are awake, right? Or Mm -hmm. a third of your life traditionally is kind of what they say. People get upset, though, when you challenge that norm or people think that it's idealistic or or ridiculous to bring up the fact that this is futile in a lot of ways. I mean, we're talking about a couple of different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all over the place. No, no, no. (laughs) I think they're important conversations because there's not necessarily um, a fix. The fact that we are selling our labor and those who are purchasing it get to set the price Mm -hmm. Um, because of competition. We don't really have a fix. We can't easily step outside of that. So what would that mean for a society to think of it differently and participate in it differently, structure it differently? Some would argue that that kind of going off the grid or even engaging only and solely exclusively in a solidarity or sharing, uh, the true sense of a sharing economy in which it's not um, currency Capital isn't currency, right. but but labor mm-hmm. or uh, doing time banking, time banking. right? Those yeah, kinds yeah. of things are ways in which they're responding to the extractive tendencies of capitalism, right? But capitalism as a system, that is what it is. So it, when you're working within capitalism, there's no friendly way of doing that. There are more harmful ways. And the U.S. has the most harmful way of participating in capitalism. Hmm. Um, When you think of other countries that are also participating, they soften it through social programs Hmm. or they recognize that 300 to 1 is is a problem. (laughs) There might be some constraints. Or they're willing to negotiate with labor. And that was getting there. And they're willing to negotiate (laughs) with labor in terms of they don't bust the unions. right? So there are different ways of engaging in capitalism. And the United States has historically – well – especially since the 90, after World War II, has kind of moved in the way in which we are the far end of the most pernicious way of particip- participating. Hmm. So there's that side of it in terms of people. I don't. Th- it's interesting that you say people get upset. I don't think people fully think about it. Like, I don't think people think about their labor being sold. I think they, when you say it to folks who feel that they're constrained because they, they have to be at work at a certain time, they can get marginal, they only get marginal wages. Yeah, they get it. Mm-hmm. But, Alternative, but what's the alternative? Right, right, right. That's more the, the it, it feels like 
too idealistic. Yeah, I think people are like, yeah, as opposed to what's because any business is that way, right, right, even right. if you're a manager. Um, right. And and even How, some right. owners. However, CEOs, I, I do right, hear I do hear even, and, you know, even young people right like like as as an educator and you get into like what do you want to do or let's have a conversation about the economy. There does seem to be an acceptance or a conditioning of this is inherent. This is how it is. That's human nature, right? Like greed and lazy. We need these coercive mm. mechanisms in order to have an economy. Yeah. And that's kind of the pushback that that I, I think I was referring to. Oh, I see. And 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 because there is an erasure, and I think you know the, the propaganda machine that's is so heavy is like we the the problem is being camouflaged so effectively that people don't know over the last forty years that the profits and the earnings mm-hmm. of you know of Wall Street mm-hmm. has come from stagnating wages, right? Yeah, so like, absolutely. The American workers have been more productive. And, and profits are less, going up, right. but the the wages the wages are declining, except to, for the top, right? And yeah, the yeah, top yeah, wages yeah. have. But we also spent like a hundred years waging war on an economic ideology, right? Like right. this idea of like we're fighting socialism. We're right. fight. It's like that is an economic theory. You can't fight a war <laughs> on a theory, mm-hmm. but that becomes weaponized, right? In that way that when you even bring up those words. Then that's when people get defensive. It's like, no, my grandfather fought against that. It's like, Absolutely. well, how you know the the loaded meanings of that? So. I think that's part of why I think the co-op thing is so compelling. Like that's language that feels, even for people who aren't in their radical bag, like that feels accessible and it feels like um, I can cooperate. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> I can do this. I yeah, got yeah, yeah. Except that it's still critiqued. I mean, it's still part of that ideological kind of spectrum in which it's understood as socialism, right? People mm-hmm. are like, oh, well, they, you know, why, why, um, why is it because it's a co- because there's not a profit maximization. Well, I shouldn't say that. People cooperatives, you do want to profit. Period. People that are in business and they're organized cooperatively, they want profit, but they make an agreement that some of that profit goes back to the workers and some gets reinvested in the organization, right? And and they they come up with the um, with the proportions collectively. So they hmm. make that decision: how much are we getting? How much? But people don't like. There are a lot of people that don't like cooperatives because when you think about the people that are like. You always think they would be on the side of labor or they would be on – right? <laughs> they act against their economic interest, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And you think about like poor white folks. Like why are they – I can be because the they one day. Fit, they, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There it is, right? And that's exactly why they think, well, no, because it takes away that possibility of being the Bill Gates. Well, there's that, that old saying. It's like poor white people think they're poor by accident. Yeah. It's like, oh, someone <laughs> just got the paperwork crossed up. <laughs> and like, they'll straighten it all out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've oh, got a petition file. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> An appeal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when I, that letter comes. I, I, I want to also, because I don't even think you may not know this about me. I want to contextualize myself just a little bit. Okay. Because it has been propagated in such a way, we assume profit to mean revenue. Mm-hmm. Right. Or to mean surplus or to mean income. Mm-hmm. But profit is actually a very specific process. So I don't know if you know this mm-hmm. about me, uh, but really like my my first entry point into like black communal work when, started when I was like five or six years old. And my mom started an investment club. Oh, and so I, I was doing like public speaking about financial literacy <laughs> And understanding long-term <laughs> market investment, build cooperative investment clubs uh-huh. uh, as a way to address socioeconomic inequality, right? And then that like kind of made me see myself as a change agent, started trying to learn about the – I studied economics, did the sociology, learned race theory, got radicalized, uh-huh. started critiquing capitalism. Long story short, here we are. So now I'm on, the, <laughs> I'm on the other side of it, right? But I still have that background. I still have that knowledge. I am still connected in certain ways, and it's caused a lot of like turmoil mm. that, that, that I try to 
reconcile. I've gotten better at it. Uh, and one of the things is I've mm-hmm. been learning about profit for so long, which in investment terms, it comes out as earnings, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is also some like Orwellian speak because <laughs> <laughs> it's not really earned. Right. But, but profit, the, 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 the basic equation is revenue minus expenses equals profit, yes. right? But labor is considered an expense yes. instead of an investment. Hmm. So basically what it incentivizes is for a, uh, an executive or you know management, they have a legal responsibility to bring ever increasing profits Absolutely. to the owners. Yes. And what that means is if revenue, like if you are McDonald's, that's a very flat example. You can only sell so many hamburgers after a certain point, mm-hmm. right? Like you cannot double a billion hamburgers. Right? But you can't <laughs> double a cheeseburger. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> and so if, if labor is seen as an expense, if you can have the power to reduce that expense, right. you can increase profit without bringing in anything more. Absolutely. Right? So surpluses can exist in the environment and naturally, and like that's how society is built off having more than like what is needed to survive. Mm-hmm. But the idea of profit is expanding this distance between what you take in and what you give out. Yes. Which is like, if you just give that to like a, a six-year-old, if we yeah, built our like economy- You're being an asshole. We built an economy of what is built upon is everybody is trying to get more than they give. Yes. And, and that is how labor is then treated in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then back to the cooperative of- we can have a surplus. Like, what's 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 yeah, what's, what's a worker cop, uh, co-op that you like? Like, that's that's cool things. That's killing uh, the game. That's killing bikes the game. Bikes or something. I don't oh know. yeah. Okay, let's just say. Bikes, yeah. But. Right. Like a bike <laughs> shop somewhere. Like we can sell bikes past what it takes to sustain our business, right? Mm-hmm. But instead of treating this surplus as ownership, to we can pay ourselves more, right? Or we can reinvest it in the business instead of shut it down, sell it mm-hmm. off the parts mm-hmm. and scrap, right? And. uh that was going into a question. Well, I'm, I mean, I think what, the only difference, right? So I think those who do cooperative economics say the exact same thing. Cooperatives call it patronage dividends, right? So that, but that, and there's a decision that's made early on that the workers get a certain percent and certain percent gets reinvested in the organization right. where the mm. firms, the corporate, the, the, the conventional firms, their fiduciary responsibility is to shareholders. Right. And so they have to maximize that, that profit. And that means you have to kind of constantly put a limit on labor and how much they're able to extract. So in that model, in the, us, back in the cooperative model, the ratio is set very early on. Is there even a formal ratio in a conventional model? No, right? No, because the return, no, not, not, not at that level because the mm-hmm. ratio for cooperatives are typically set in bylaws. Right. For the corporations, for the conventional corporations, once, especially once they go public, it's set for shareholders, at least right. not, not as explicitly, but they say how much of a return on investment they, mm-hmm. they hope right. to get. Mm-hmm. So, but it's not for the labor at all, no. Hmm. All right. We got to backtrack, and we've been talking for an hour, and I want to talk oh, about wow. you. Yes. How did you get into this? That, well, I was right there yeah, at the same exactly. moment. Our rhythms uh, lined yeah, yeah, yeah. up. We can, we can put the banks off for a little bit. Uh, okay. Because well, that's, that's, a, that's a wrap. Yeah, yeah so what, is it, what, <laughs> what for you, let's say maybe as a bridge here, just on a, an idea or even like an emotional level, is exciting about seeing instances of this being put in work? Like what, what does that feed for you, and does that connect to something Earlier in life, I'm just trying to craft a narrative here. No, I mean, I think it, it's it's everything that I do, and I really think about, and the and my work is very much about self determination mm-hmm. and kind of mitigating marginality in Black communities first and foremost. Like that is what motivates me around everything. Yeah, and understanding marginality not just in Black spaces, but if spaces are anti-Black, then they're anti they're anti a lot of things, right? Yeah. So if we can address, <laughs> if we can address that, then we will be kind of like moving down the right path. And I've been thinking about this since I was a kid, right? Since what provoked that? 
family. I come in New York. He came out of a very kind of um, somewhat of a black nationalist tradition, mm. black culturalist tradition. Are there organizations or figures that kind of embody the tradition yeah. that you see yourself? So in? my great grandfather was a Garveyite. Okay. Um, and others in my family, we, we adopted the Akan tradition, which is a West African mm-hmm, Ghanaian mm-hmm, tradition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that I grew up in that. It would always seemed a little distant because like, my brother and I weren't as deeply invested in it, but we were part of it at the same time, mm-hmm. like all my uncles and my cousins yeah. and so forth. And that was a you know a very strong community in Queens, especially. Do you have family in the continent? Um, I do, but that's typically through marriage because all of my family came from Barbados, uh, and then folks have married Ghanaians uh, and so forth. Um, where in Queens were you? I'm from Brooklyn, but the oh, temple, but ah. the um, the Akan temple was. Um, that's why you're, you're like, that's <laughs> why she's so fly. She she brought that Brooklyn, Brooklyn. to us. We, we <laughs> Brooklyn, were we yeah. were ready for the. And yeah. it'll make you an urban planner because you're like, I'm here in Brooklyn. Queens is right <laughs> here. I didn't come to urban planning until real, real late. I mean, I thought I was going to do economic <laughs> development stuff. Mm. And um, small business development, I did, and I actually did an MBA in economics okay. and yeah. organizations, did corporate stuff, hated did it. Did that suck? Sucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> like the grown-up version of you at doing yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. Very similar, <laughs> very similar. <laughs> but, okay. And then that brought me back to school to do urban planning and sociology. Hmm. Yeah. So in, in in being let, let, let's stay back. So you're in the city. You're going back and forth between these it's uh, New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The city. So what from the you know that very kind of vibrant and close knit community and maybe the traditions that are connected to it? Is there anything in that that feeds this um, cooperative understanding? Yeah, yeah, very much. And it wasn't so much the a con, although that was culturally that was very rich. Bedford Stuyvesant. When mm-hmm. I was growing up, it doesn't. It wasn't gentrified, right? Mm-hmm. Like now, it's a total mess. When I grew up, it people would call it a mess. They would call it ghetto, but I felt community. I felt like it was great to see black-owned stores. I felt, you know, the neighborhood was needed some resources, but nevertheless, people were. It was a community. You were the livest one. <laughs> we were the livest. Community. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say I couldn't help it. We're, we have to make sure that since we're so synced up here yeah. that we sync up in a good direction. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we can't push each other towards the corner. And so, but that, that's what that's what motivated me. Mm-hmm. Really being in community and saying, okay, there, if we could do more for ourselves, right? Like, how do we right. take care of our, ourselves? How do we provision for ourselves? How do we start our own enterprises and support ourselves? And then over time, you see that everyone is like leaving community. And why do you have to leave the community to get certain things? Mm-hmm. Right? Why can't they be here? Mm-hmm. Th- that that's always been my curiosity hmm. can i ask a really off the wall question sure 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 in hearing you say the like how can we take care of ourselves and then in that communal self-determination model i've been of course just like everyone freaking out on some climate change stuff mm. recently and so i was thinking about like preppers their apocalypse plans and mm. people who are stockpiling food and just thinking about how individualist those models are right it's like mm-hmm. if i build the doors a bunker literally. exactly <laughs> if i make the walls thick enough and i have enough food me and the three people around me who I love can survive, hmm. right? I don't expect you to have an answer to this because this is, again, out of nowhere. But I'm trying to figure out, like, what are some – how could you have cooperative prepping? Are you talking about, like, the economic apocalypse or so the, for the I'm actually literally thinking, planet, like, planetary. climate apocalypse. Yeah, okay. But that, that as well. Like, what are some – you know, because some of it is agricultural and food-based. But there are just – like you were saying, like, in an area that was divested from, there were plenty of ways that people – fed each other, took care of each other, and created somewhat stable economies that relied on each other. It didn't have the resources to provide everything, but there were these closed systems. So I'm just trying to think like when things externally 
you know, uh, who, who was the president who got off in the South Bronx and was like, salvage what you can. There was uh, Gerald Ford, I think. Oh, Ford and Carter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when the whole everywhere <laughs> has that external model of like, this has fallen apart, what are some, I'm just trying to figure out ways to like bring that cooperative model to like the to disaster, disaster. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think it is, um, well, one, we can't wait till then. I actually right. think that <laughs> is, <laughs> that, 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 that folks are trying, right? We're trying in all different ways. When I talk about cooperatives, I'm also talking about the solidarity economy broadly. I'm talking about collective ownership of land, community right. land Interest, trusts, yeah. like the fact that we have, especially in Chicago, so much on the South Side, vacant land, yeah, yeah. that should go back to community, right? That should go back to the organizations that have been there doing stuff, and they get to determine that whether they're doing community gardens and, and urban farming, building low-income income housing, putting little houses, little the tiny little house, tiny yeah. houses there yeah, for yeah. homeless folks. It should be determined by the community. So that's what I mean. The collective yeah. ownership is not just your family, but community broadly right. and using the resources that are there. How do we use land and be more conscious of preservation, right? right? Collect it because we understand that our linked fate, right. that you can't be a preservationist <laughs> with your two best friends. Like, that's right. not enough. You right. need, you need no really no bunker is strong There's enough. There's not, not yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> I want to I stay with you a little bit more and and hear more about the journey of, of how you got into the city. Mm -hmm. uh, you're at UIC now and yeah. kind of like what your role is there. We've kind of, you know, we, 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 we're building a little like list of, of y'all over here at UIC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we had Clarno, I mean, we I had mean, Stovall. Yep. yep. Um, anybody else? We're going to have Barbara. Barbara. Yeah, next week. These are folks that are really thinking about and critiquing the system as is. Mm -hmm. And Nick Theodore wrote the first book on neoliberalism, right? He, he and, uh, <laughs> wasn't with Jamie Peck. It was with another co-author. That's a, that's a good like, claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, I think he's like one of the most, I don't remember, one of the most cited scholars in the mm. world. Mm. He's mm. like, does some dope stuff. Um, and he does a lot of stuff on informal economy. I never thought of that as a stat. Like, no, it is for us. It's who, a big stat. Who, who got, how many sites you got? Here's a, we have a <laughs> we have a new citation. Ooh. I forgot to tell you this. This is has nothing this to do is, with you, but, but you get exciting. to be here to celebrate. You get to okay. be a part of this. So my us. friend is in law school at Georgetown. Whoa! And he <laughs> said that he was reading an article on abolition, uh -huh. and there was a Miriam Kaba quote, and he went uh -huh. to the citation. It was from when she was on our show. Oh, bang, bang, bang! <laughs> in the Harvard Law Review. What? What? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's check, crazy. Check our Instagram. I'll put the picture up of the. That's a, that's big money right there. <laughs> there you go. It's like Harvard, but like yeah, big money to someone. That's. That's fabulous. We need uh, royalties for, for yeah, absolutely. The oh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for stream. Uh -huh. Send her an email. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I do have one more, okay. just like structural question, and then we'll get back into the narrative. Because you, the person, is cool, and you, the idea, is cool. <laughs> so it's hard to, to choose. So let's say we all agree that we want to do this, right? Or we all agree that this is a better model um, and we don't know exactly how to do this. Mm. Um, what other structures for investment? Are there outside of these like public programs? Are there ways for people and community to invest in cooperatives? And is there like a way to have the same type or a similar mm. incentive structure, right? Like, because mm -hmm. if you want to say, oh, I want to build up wealth for my, my community and family, the like model that I'm trying to discard was we can take part in some of this profit that these 
large institutions are, are having, and we can use some of that to build ourselves up. Mm. But in doing that, we are investing in harm, mm-hmm. right? And expanding mm-hmm. the capacity for mm-hmm. harm. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Absolutely. And so I, I'm personally very interested in like, how can we as community invest in direct resources to cooperatives? And is there any type of model where that is incentivized or has mutual yeah. benefit? So um, there's a model in Boston that just kind of started, and it's about a, co- it's, it's a community investment fund that started by and run by community members. I think it's kind of the Jima project. Okay, start and the, one of those. And then there's another project in Oakland that is like a community land trust and cooperatives, and they've been buying up land for cooperative businesses to start. Plus, I feel like the Oakland one dresses better than the Boston one. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Boston one's pretty dope, I have to say. If you look it up, it's, it's pretty dope. So I think we have to think about it differently because yes. if we're t- because the thing is that you can't just invest in a cooperative it's not a, just about the capital right, that you're going right, to get right, a return right, on investment. Right. Cooperatives typically aren't, they're not footloose typically, right? They typically go into a place or they're started by community members, mm-hmm. right? So they're staying there right, with right, the assumption right. that they want to protect the land and make it keep it affordable. They want to, you know, provide these goods and services. And because it's only one member, one vote, you know, one thing to do is to start cooperatives mm-hmm. with your folks, right? Mm-hmm. Start things as cooperatively owned. I think the first step is trying to understand how to participate in democracy. How do we make these decisions <laughs> yeah. cooperatively? How do we democratically? How do we run a meeting? How do we run a meeting? <laughs> so, like, it comes back. It comes back to the agenda every time. Really what if bad. it turns out that that's why, why? like all the bill capital, they're just like, I can't sit in any more yeah. meetings. <laughs> I'd rather be forced. I do that too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, just it's tell frustrating. Me what to do. Right. Yeah. It's frustrating. <laughs> and the guy's run. like, I'm just going to tell you what to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, democracy is hard. It's not easy. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. hard. It's not easy. It's not efficient. And sometimes people choose, we've been talking about this a lot, what do you do when harmful decisions are democratically chosen? Yeah. Right? And and how do you come to terms with that? Because that does happen all the time, you know? All the time. How do you, how do you reconcile that as a, people levy that as a, actually, it's it's really interesting how many Americans are anti-democracy if you really, mm. like, start to, like, yeah. get to them and That's ask true. them about it as, as they we proliferate democracy. Right. But as we just admit it, it is not efficient. It is it is hard? It is it is much longer of a process. This is a great Fourth of July episode, by the way. <laughs> Ooh, boom, boom, boom. Uh, so, how do you reconcile that? I think inherently, internally, we know, but this is a better, humane way to live. Mm-hmm. But if the results don't seem to match up, I mean, I don't want to paint this as too idealistic, right? Because right. while we're talking about democracy, we still, you know, things have decisions have to get made. So I reconcile it by. You know, yes, the group can make a collective decision that seems harmful. As part of the group, you keep pushing back. You keep raising other questions. You keep the alternatives on the table. Mm-hmm. And so the, everyone else may decide that they, they're still going to go this other direction, but at least they're cognizant of their decision. So there's mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And the other part of it is recognizing that um, even with cooperatives, there's hierarchy. Although we're talking about democracy, it doesn't mean that everyone is in every decision at every moment. Right. It means that some people have greater knowledge of certain things, right? If mm-hmm. we're talking about finance, maybe, you know, Damon comes in. If we're talking about something else, somebody else. And, and we could Minor see— Minor League Baseball, we bring in kiss. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And so we recognize that we all bring different things to Shout the table. Shout out to the Kane County Cougars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that joke, but I like that. Just, just I, I like that alliter- alliteration. <laughs> I have a, a good working understanding of minor league baseball teams, some of which actually are, may not work or cooperative, some of which actually are cooperative models. Like um, 
and even in other sports like the Green Bay Packers, oh, Packers are yeah. a publicly owned. Yes, they are. Uh, and it's not worker owned, but it's but city they, owned. Yeah. They should get shouted out more for that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like the Packers, but I don't care. I'm not that yeah, nice yeah, anymore. Yeah, I don't care. Guy. They should get more love. Yeah, that is really, it's, it's a municipal really club. interesting. <laughs> yeah. We have all these instances of private corporations paying no money to have and have public money used to build stadiums. Like here's an example of revenue feeding a medium-sized Midwestern industrial slash post-industrial city. Mm-hmm. It's no, very that, that It's really a, it's it an interesting a example. example. Yeah. But to this democracy question. Oh, right, right. You, you were kind of talking about the um, organizing of decision-making, right? Yeah. And sometimes everybody doesn't need... I've learned pretty hard that like 12 is the cutoff. <laughs> if you get more of the 12, 12 people of making one singular decision, we need to break these decisions out mm. a few... Like if you got 36 people trying to make one decision, that, that does not happen. Not happen. But this is like how you get a Senate. Is like that exact logic, though, is the idea of like we can't have everyone involved. Have have I think it needs to be co- coordinated. I don't think you need to be disconnected or and you can have access to who those 12 are. It shouldn't be the same 12, but like inter-networked committee type things. You're right, though. But it's yeah. true. It probably does go to representative pretty quickly right, that's from there. Like, yeah, that's the jump. So I don't know their number. I think I don't know if there is a number. Yeah. I think it really depends on the kinds of decisions. So there's also this democratization of information. Right. So mm. while you may not be the finance guy, you should understand the books, right? right, right? And right. it should or at least be able be, to see them. At least yeah, be yeah. able to surely <laughs> the tr- yeah absolutely <laughs> right. it should be transparent, but also learning. So part of cooperatives is is education. So there's seven principles that that's the other thing. Ah. Seven principles that all cooperatives subscribe by. And if, see the reason I didn't bring it up because I don't remember all seven. Of them. <laughs> yeah. But they were established in the 1890s and then... In what context? Um, so the International Cooperative Association, ICA, these were called the Rochdale Principles. So the for, this cooperative um, organization or association in England, I believe, you know articulated yeah. the I got them. seven yeah. principles. I want to I do like a school like we each read one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the first cooperative societies must have an open and voluntary membership. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means anybody that wants to be part of it should be allowed. Democratic member control. There it is. The one second member, one of the vote. Rochdale principle states that the cooperative societies cute, have democratic <laughs> member control. All right. One member, one vote. There we mm-hmm. go. That's two. What's number three? This member one. economic participation. Mm-hmm. Cooperatives are enterprises in which members contribute equitably to and democratically control the capital of their cooperative. So it's not just the decision making. It's also but, the capital. But remember that in that it's not that. So if you have if you're starting a food cooperative and you need a, quite a bit of capital. It might be that every member has to put $1,000, which seems inordinate for some folks. They, you can determine that, those, that some folks might pay it in one lump sum. Others might pay it over 10 years. No, mm-hmm. they have to pay it over a year. But whatever the number is, it's supposed to work with the members that are, that are part of it. Here's a mid-list question. Got you. We're never going to finish this. <laughs> no, we're going to finish this list. Equity. Mm-hmm. So one, that's just a theme of the show, but it's also become like used in like political Everything. ideology now. And yeah. it's it's in some ways like abstract and sometimes mm-hmm. even like metaphor. Mm-hmm. Do you have a like a much more tangible, concrete understanding of the, the, the notion of equity and how that looks? And like once we say something is inequitable, do you process that on a different level? I don't know about if it's a different level. I know we talk about that a lot in urban planning because it's this mm-hmm. term that has become kind of empty. It, right. Everybody wants an equitable plan, equitable communities. What does that mean? And and how is that different than than, than equal? Right? Equal just means everyone's getting the same. Mm-hmm. But right. people that have been historically harmed, that that doesn't help, right? It just just keeps keeps the um, the stratification. So for equity, it's really about bringing people up, people the most marginalized up right. to a level in which others 
are currently situated at. And it could be for anything. For me, it's about distribution of resource for the, the most marginalized such that they can fully participate in the system. Mm-hmm. You can't participate in democracy if you are kind of economically challenged, right? You can't, you're not really making you know, fair and open decisions. So equi- an equitable plan, an equitable vision is one that focuses on those most marginalized and bringing them up to a quality of life mm-hmm. that everybody would subscribe mm-hmm. to. So, so it's like a, 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 more, a more sophisticated assessment of need. Of need, kind of, of fairness, like what's mm-hmm. just? In history, what does a just yeah. city look like? Right, right, yeah. right? What, what does that mean? That's so complicated though when what you're trying to bring people to is a position that has only been able to exist because of extraction, mm. right? So it's like making sure that everyone in the United States can equally benefit from the extraction and colonization of the planet. Like, that's not a, a yeah, good system, Yeah, that's right? not a good system. So, when you, you know, frame it that way. <laughs> that's, why, that's why global consciousness is right, important. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's why, right, you know, and to your point about, like, you know, the goal is to get a piece, and then that becomes two pieces, and then all of a sudden we're equally participants in this extractive... <laughs> well, you know. but or you could say, if we really subscribe to that, I mean, the goal wouldn't be extraction in the same way, right? right? You could still have a society in which everyone is is getting what they need and not kind of um, harming society, right? right? Doing less harm could be one of the principles. And one way to do that is to, instead of trying to bring everyone up to the point of the people who have the most, is extract the people who have the most. Right, yeah, right. And so that's why I kind of didn't say up to the point of that because it's, yeah, they're, they're... too far up, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so there, there needs to be some, I mean, to make it equitable, they need to give up some of right. the resources mm-hmm. right. indeed. And it's it would be great right. if they did it voluntarily. All right, <laughs> 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 cooperative yeah. bottle. All right, number four. All right, I'm gonna let you just do it so we can do it quicker. Co-ops are autonomous self-help organizations controlled by their members. Yes. Five, they must provide education and training to their members and the public. Mm. Six, Cooperatives cooperate with each other. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the that is the principle everyone loves: cooperation among cooperatives. So if you call a cooperative, I helped a cooperative, um, an organization in an Austin neighborhood. They're trying to start food co-op, mm-hmm. and I was like, just call all the cooperatives around and ask them what they did. They're like, no, they're not going to tell us that you know their yeah, trade secrets. So outside, oh no, they idea. so yeah. did. Wow, and they came to the meetings. Wow. All all. That's just and, and, and then I guess the goal of that would not only be because it's like the right thing to do, but also a big part of like competition is that it's inefficient in the way that it duplicates, mm. right? Like we don't need 15 different car companies that make cars different. And now there's all these parts that aren't interchangeable, right? And so like if you have that flow of information, you're not like replicating in ways that are inefficient. You can like... It's that, yes. And it's the notion that we need to build this community of cooperatives. Right. So if you're a food co-op in Oak Park, if you're a food co-op in Logan Square, if you're a food co-op somewhere else, yeah, you're going to help Austin start a food cooperative right. because it's better for the broader mm-hmm. cooperative mm-hmm. community. Your point isn't that you want to take the whole, right, whole you right, know, right, right. keep the king keep of the co-ops. The, <laughs> king of the co-ops, no. We want all communities yeah. to have co-ops. Number seven, cooperative societies work for the sustainable development of their communities through policies approved by their members. There so is. it's a, it's about concern and contribution. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. I have a, I have they a wrote down. the hell out yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah. and good, that good means list. from 1895. Yeah, good list. They, they did a good Bars. job. So we don't want to take all your time. You're, you're a busy person. Thank you. And thank you for teaching <laughs> us all of this. I do want to end or, or, or wind down with you again. You started in naming yourself as a scholar activist. Uh, I've gotten to know you as part of the R3 coalition. Whoop, whoop. R- real quick, do you are you 
you're a New Yorker. You're Wu-Tang <laughs> familiar, right? Yeah, yeah. So for like the last 18 months or so, I've had this running metaphor about our little conglomerate mm. of, of social justice people. Okay. And I call us Wu-Tang. <laughs> and I, I state Barbara as like, Oh, the RZA. Indeed. Right? Indeed. <laughs> she, she holds the table. She chops up the beats. Uh, you would probably Barbara be Rizby. like a, Yeah, yeah. But you're probably like an inspector deck just a I'm, I'm a, type in of, training. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I've gotten to know you in that space and in that realm. Um, and you named yourself a scholarly activist. You said you did stuff in New York, but it doesn't compare to what's happening here. It's kind of how you... Well, it's not just the it. stuff I did. You know, so if it, um, it's more that collectively, when I look out yeah. and see what's happening in Chicago, right, 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 right. there's a lot of stuff happening in yeah, New York. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. the way in which people know each other, the community that's being built, and the the way in which people really put their bodies into the work here is really a beautiful mm. thing. So to break down the word activism to active or activity, right? Because mm. your knowledge base or your work is so big mm. and addressing it is one, a collective project that's beyond yourself, but also is multi-generational, mm-hmm. right? Like transforming the economy. So for you, Stacy, in your fresh fits, uh, <laughs> what what is the activity, the active impact you seek to have with this work that you're doing mm. as opposed to just knowledge creation? So, it's changing policy and planning, changing our thinking about cooperative economics, changing municipal policy about cooperative economics. That's a big part of it. Exposing the inequities, exposing the disparities with regard to policy and how that that kind of intentionality is doing harm. And so yeah. the degree to which people know it, our elected officials know it, but the degree you put it out there, bam, they have to you have to do you either Intentionally choose not to do anything right. or you do something, right? right? So the degree to which scholars have some level of legitimacy because of the institutions we're working in, it's for me, it's my responsibility to use the skills and the institutional position to, um, you know, in that way, be an advocate, right? Well, what are some of the harms? There's so many you can choose from, right? And right. how do I just put use data? And, and because I understand data and I work with data, I'm comfortable with data. How do you use that empirical evidence in a way that people think it's the numbers that make everything legitimate. It's like, well, okay, well, look at this number. Boom. Um, <laughs> got numbers for so days. They got numbers for right, days. Right, and so right. that that's... And so I could use look at many topics. Yeah, we it's didn't even talk topic. about gentrification. Oh, man. Oh, I know. Oh, next time. That's a whole other thing. thing. Right. Watch, I was enjoying your TED Talk. Oh, thank you. I don't watch a lot of TED Talks <laughs> just because I am not drawn to the form. <laughs> I like when people talk to each other instead of at each other. But yours mm. was very helpful and informative and like... Folks, go check it out. Can we'll, we'll we can we give it. the one sentence of it? Like, like social uh, gentrification is a social justice issue. That's what mm-hmm. I said, mm-hmm. and it's a decision that's getting made, um, whether intentionally or kind of um, unwittingly, but or indirectly. It's a set of decisions in policy and planning that lead to de- gentrification. And there's a difference between gentrification and community revitalization. Mm-hmm. Every community wants you know mm-hmm. access to resources and mm-hmm. shops and so mm-hmm. forth. But people shouldn't be displaced right. by that. Right. Yeah. What What are some of those like? If these processes are happening, it is gentrification. People are being pushed out mm-hmm. of their community. Um, you know, people move all the time. Neighborhoods are dynamic. Mm-hmm. But if people f- can no longer stay in place, but they would like to, that's Being probably and that happens. Um, what are the um, policies that you would see connected? Well, to that? a lot of that has to do with development policies, the incentives that private developers get to develop mm-hmm. in certain places. Their private equity. Things that people don't even, they're surely not cognizant of, people are not cognizant of um, the way in which private equity is being used to invest in real estate and in in rental housing yeah. in a way in which you're creating more luxury housing right. so that the investors can, you know, they 
they right. can see what they're investing in and extract from that. Mm-hmm. And then there are all the um, ways that housing value and the property values are kept low yep. in order to then, when it's ready to put the money in here, right. and then... And that's know, what we're seeing the on the south side, right? Absolutely. So they, the city's giving away land to developers mm-hmm. essentially for a dollar, and then they develop these properties that are well above what the market rate for properties were, right? So in yeah. the south side, they're like... The houses, well, there was a particular program in which they um, developers got 40 properties, mm-hmm. and the lowest price point was like $500,000 for the mm-hmm. house. Right? But they were given these properties. Is this, what's going on in our neighborhood? That's what I'm talking okay. about. Okay, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. That's it. It's like... Ridiculous. Like, to, over the top. In like a two, three blocks, like walking distance, it's dozens of new houses coming up. You don't or have like, to say your address. Yeah, yeah. Where, where this is um, Washington Park, Bronzeville. Yep. So, so right by the park. So, like, like which apartment and like how many? <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know that I, I've talked about it before. I really, it really is turmoil for it's me really, because aesthetically, I like the look of the gentrification house. Mm. Right, like you're the, the little, only person. I, I like it. It's it. sleek. It's it is sleek. a very. Sleek, they use different materials. You and a bunch of like MBAs it looks, like that. It looks space agey. <laughs> you know, I get it. I was intrigued when I first saw it, but there's like. 15 of those, of those at least on one block yeah and then you see that they're like digging holes and, and I mean, dating off stuff on the corner I've never of seen a neighborhood look, look the way, like the way in like three now. years it's going to be completely different totally different they <laughs> went for $700,000 one it's like who could afford that in our, uh, that, that we're talking about on in 49th and right yeah yeah. yeah. Good job not giving the cross. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> over there. Over, over there. there by the park. In between King and Cottage. That's, <laughs> yeah, That's all you got. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We could go yes. forever. Um, let's check out real quick. Okay. Check out is just what's a, a piece of the conversation that's sticking with you in your head or just how are you feeling right now? Um, and you can take a second to uh, – you, uh, you, you're like, oh, my God. I got I to gotta synthesize. <laughs> um, for me, I just really appreciated the distinction between – like owner-driven co-ops and worker co-ops. That was a parallel that like mm-hmm. I hadn't quite mapped out before. Mm-hmm. And I think co-op, like it feels so, again, like approachable and like a great sounding idea that to be able to see that nuance mm-hmm. there in the ways that they can still be extractive is really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. So, so much. All of it. Um, I think this was personally really exciting. It, it allowed me to like get into a space that I, I like have spent a lot of time thinking mm-hmm. about, but like don't want to force here. And so like, <laughs> I, I, for all who, who've, Saw me go off the rails there. It couldn't ask a question. I was I was very excited. Um, you did great. Bob. Yes, thank you. But my, my takeaway though is I definitely want to look more into that community investment fund or programming that that feels right up the alley of of what's needed around these parts. Let's talk land trust sometime. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're starting. We're, we're talking land trust. Yes, the move. <laughs> oh, that is the end. You asked in the beginning. What is it in Chicago? Mm-hmm. Chicago has the worst structure for community land trust huh. in the country. So there, there are you different think that's models. Intentional? I mean <laughs> they're different <laughs> I <laughs> they're different models and Chicago has this municipal land trust whereby the mayor appoints folks on the land trust. So then how is that a community <laughs> land like what are you talking about? And people think that's how it works yeah. and I have to tell my students Again, king again, of the co ops. Yeah. I, I mean that's you don't it does you know. Yeah. So yeah. there's just so many examples. Uh, yeah. So what's so there's that, that kind of conversation, but also just hearing about Eamon's when he was five, like that makes sense that you were running things and fi- getting finance. Yeah. When you were five, that was pretty impressive. Yeah, if we'd had a podcast then, we might get paid. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Thank right. you so much for coming through and chopping it up with us. You have um, anything out in the world you want people to see, or do you want to be found any type of way? Social media, any of oh, that? Yeah, jazz? I'm not, I'm not a big any shout outs? Nah. <laughs> R3. R3, yeah, yeah. We yeah, yeah. Imagine Rebuild. Check us out. If people are interested in stuff I do, they can go to my website at University of Illinois, Chicago. But if you just look up Stacy Sutton, 
Cool. And, and you can find me. Google me. Google me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you right. so much again for talking really about us. You. We'll be back you. next week with another person reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Peace. Hey, Dame. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. How, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> the iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? <sighs> it isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the app store where you get all the other things. That yeah. You, you going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. <gasps> yeah. Pay, pay us more money, folks. <laughs> that's, that's advertising in action. You see? Works. <laughs> see, that's how good we are at selling things. We're doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it.